as many of you know, I am an obnoxious West Virginia University fan. Um, my, uh, my alma mater is West Virginia University, home of the Mountaineers, and I talk about it and actually write for a sports website um, for uh, the Mountaineers. I do it under a pseudonym so that I don't get in trouble for things that I do or don't say. So I'm not going to tell you what that pseudonym is, although it wouldn't take you long to figure it out. Um, uh, so anytime I get the opportunity to run into a West Virginia University uh, alumni, I get alumnus, I get excited. If I had the opportunity, as I did uh, a decade ago, to meet some of the greats of our football history, it's even uh, more wonderful. And uh, I was with my daughter in Disney World in Orlando, and, uh, and I took every 10-year-old girl loves this, uh, took her to the ESPN zone there in Disney World. And, uh, and, uh, and at this place uh, was uh, two former West Virginia All-Americans. One's uh, when this is the name of Daryl Talley. He played with the Buffalo Bills. And the other one was a guy named Brian Joswiak. I got pictures of this guy. This guy was enormous. I mean, I don't mean a little bit big. This guy was huge. We've got a couple of tall guys in our church today, if you see them. Imagine both of them together. That's how big. This person was a mountain. He was six foot five, 305 pounds, and that was muscle. And he was a steroid user back before it was cool. I mean, he was unbelievably huge. And I met him in person. And, and I was stunned by his behemoth size. And, and it made me think, how am I going to communicate this to other people? I mean, how do I describe, unless they experience the size and magnitude of this football player, they could never really appreciate watching on television these people beating each other up as they do every Saturday and Sunday in, in America. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I have to say and hope that you believe me that this guy isn't big just because I say so. He's verifiably huge. And you say, well, what's the big deal? Well, we are embarking on a new study here. And in this book of Hebrews... We're trying to, and I would hope to, in this introductory message that will go through the entirety of our summer, give you a sense of the overarching purpose of the book of Hebrews. We would say as Christians, and it certainly was the case in the first century, that Jesus was great, that he was superior, as this passage we read just said. But it isn't just because we are religiously narrow it is because Jesus can verifiably be asserted, he can be proved that he is God from all eternity. It is objectively true, if he has been risen from the grave, that he is who the scriptures claim he is. We are 100% certain if Jesus came back to life, if the one who would say and we would profess to believe in genuinely came out of the grave 2,000 years ago, it is a certainty that he is greater than all others. Not just because we would want him to be, but because about what his status as a resurrected Savior now says about who he is in his being. The book of Hebrews, another wonderful logo designed by Sarah Tinkin. The book of Hebrews, welcome to this new series. And we have to ask as we begin a new series, who were these Hebrews and why was this letter sent? Scholars are mixed about uh, the original recipients. They, they aren't sure which particular church, but there are some clues. 
Uh, it is one that they were Hebrews, because uh, virtually no reference to what life as a Gentile believer would be through the entirety of the book. And so more than likely they were converted Jews. We also know that the author himself is fond of quoting, making Old Testament references from what's known as the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So for one reason or another, this author, um, and it's contested as to which of the apostles actually wrote the letter to the Hebrews because it isn't specifically addressed. It doesn't say from Paul or love Apollos. Here's your letter. It doesn't say any of that, so we don't know. But it does say that this person thought it was best in communicating to this audience that they quote from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that's more than likely, and most scholars agree on this particular point, because the audience was more acquainted with reading the Old Testament in Greek. So there's some speculation. There were concentrations of Jewish convert believers who were Greek-speaking there were some concentrations of those people, one of which was in Alexandria, Egypt. Lots and lots of different things we'll discover along the way. And it's relevant because when you think of what the purpose of a book of the New Testament would be, it would be to address a particular people in a particular context. But at the same time, we can take what was said to them and apply it to our own lives in our context. What's clear from this book is that this group of Hebrew convert Christians were undergoing a resistance to their gospel message. The opposition was causing many who'd been associated with the movement to be tempted to avoid any further association with Jesus and his followers. And if not abandon association, some were under pressure to adopt the theological viewpoint of the dominant culture around them. And I can't think of a book that has more personal application to us living in this area. If we claim to be people who would like to trust Scripture or follow Jesus, there is considerable pressure for us as a church to change what we think and feel because people might be offended by what we're saying. This book has some instructions to us as a young church. Do we wish 20 years from now, after just starting over three years ago, do we want 20 years from now to be known as a biblically faithful church? And if so, how do we avoid caving into pressure to change the portions of Scripture that offend others, or potentially, by talking about these things, marginalize us in the popular culture? This is often a concern for people who are part of the emerging church. That's a theological designation that's not necessarily worth describing this morning. All that to say, what's driving a lot of their desire to change what the Bible says or reteach it in a specific way is that people are leaving. People are offended. And I can say that it seems consistent with what others have criticized the church for being. They've said the church is not like it was in the first century. I've heard people who were not believers say, you know, if the church was just like it used to be, everything would be fine, but something got corrupted. Well, the reality is, is the church was most effective when it was the least popular, when it was the least attached to a particular culture, when it was certainly not attached to a government, and it was a minority group. That's when you see the flourishing of community and the power of God's Spirit. You see it in a place where they didn't have any cultural attachments. So I don't fear being 
marginalized. I don't fear people saying, I don't want to be a part of your world. Naturally, none of us do. We need the Spirit of God to cause people to want to say, I want to follow Christ. If you're not a Christ follower and you're here today, take comfort with the fact that you're in a room full of people who, apart from some miracle of the Holy Spirit, wouldn't be following Him either. And so all of us are at a place where we're saying, you know what, I'm not trying to offend folks, but if what I come to believe about God is rubbing you the wrong way, I'm really, really sorry about that, but it isn't my intention to do that. But I can't change what I think and feel because I'm really concerned about not being included in the, you know, at the big kids' table of culture. If, if they don't want to follow the Jesus of the New Testament, then there's very little I can do about that other than pray that God would help them see how much he loves them. In this text, this introductory section of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the writer of Hebrews gets right to the point. Like a great article written in a newspaper. Um, I was a journalism student, not a good one. Uh, and so I went into broadcasting instead. Uh, because if you can't write, you just use the gift you have to talk. And I have a face made for radio, so television wasn't an option. So we, uh, we would do what was called having a lead. In the lead, you would say where you were going. When I teach communications, because those who can't do teach, uh, at, at Providence Christian College, we, we say you, you tell them what you're going to tell them, and then you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. And, and, and this is the essence of writing a sermon. It's the essence of certainly what this book certainly does, which is to say, I'm going to tell you here in the first four verses what the entirety of this book is about. And then we're going to get real specific on details. Now, throughout this series, I'll access a number of studies on the subject, but primary amongst them, if you like to read this type of stuff yourself, is John MacArthur's study, Perfect Savior, Perfect Priest. In this section and throughout the letter, it is stated with offending clarity that Jesus is superior. He's greater than all who came before, and not just because we say so. So why does the author of Hebrews make such a rash statement, such an offensive statement? Because the New Testament and first century believers were proclaiming a particular truth that Jesus wasn't just a man. Jesus was God in the flesh who now ruled over the entire world. He wasn't just giving us a lifestyle. He wasn't just giving us an ethic. Their claim was that this human being walking around, this human being that died and was buried, this human being came back to life and now sits at the right hand of the Father and is the sovereign over the entirety of the world, including all of the Old Testament prophets that the group of Jews who were persecuting them were so offended to hear. So a couple of quick thoughts as we introduce Hebrews to you today. And the first would be this. Why did they say Jesus was superior? Why would the author say, this is where we're going, and let me tell you why. Jesus is superior to the prophets because of who he is. All right, this is a I, I want you to really grasp onto this point if you can. Because in our culture, it's going to be an issue for you. Uh, the larger a metropolitan area, the further away from the south of the Midwest you get, you're going to have to have substantively something to answer with when people say, why do you think Jesus is Lord over all? A-L-L. -L. That means all other religions. It means all other people. It means even the person you're talking to. 
you're going to have to know why. This is what verses 1 and 2 say in our text. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also, also he made the universe. In this context, this group of Jewish converts were saying that Jesus was God, and to a group of Jews, that would be extremely offensive. But what really tweaked them was when they said, and Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus is superior to the angels. Jesus is superior to the prophets. See, now this got people really riled up. As you can understand, because it it gets people really riled up today, if you said Jesus is superior to Muhammad, there are Muslims who would take great offense to that. If you said Jesus is superior to any number of religious leaders, any number of religions, people would take offense to that. So they took offense to that in this context where they were talking to Jews. And these Jewish converts were saying that Jesus is better than the prophets. And then on top of that, the the Jews knew that Gentiles were beginning to come into the church of Jesus. And this gathering of people was now not just a pure group of Jews. They didn't like the fact that Gentiles were now going to say, we have someone who is superior to the Old Testament prophets. Gentiles, please. I mean, they were saying, we're not going to be a part of this whole experience. We live in a world where many people doubt that God can be known and where there are many conflicting philosophies and religious viewpoints, even amongst Christians. These first verses of Hebrews state with clarity that God spoke decisively to Israel through the prophets and that he has fully and finally revealed his character and will by his son. Now, this is going to be the crux of most objections to historical Christianity, and that is this. I'm going to state it for you. People are going to object to this definition of what Christianity is by saying, oftentimes, that Christianity is just one of a group of world religions that are all equal in their attempt to describe God. Now, I don't know if you've heard this before, but this is, if you talk to people who are thinking friends, they they may be great buddies, family members, people who are interested in spiritual things, this will often be their take, that Christianity could not be, Jesus could not be superior to other people. It's just one of a myriad of religions that are trying to describe what God is all about. And answer one to this objection, and I would have to tell you up front that if you're having a conversation and you object to something somebody says, uh, the, the best strategy almost always is to form another question. So I would say to somebody who would say that, so you're saying we're all equal, all religions are the same. So if I right now created a religion and I stated what I believed, it would be as legitimate as Hinduism Buddhism, Islam, or Christianity? And if they say yes, then I go, okay, I have a religion, and my religion believes that women are subservient to men and can be traded as slaves. Now, if they don't object to that, they've got psychological problems, and at the same time, they got huge philosophical problems, because you'd go, most everybody would go, hold on a second, you're going to treat women like slaves? What in the world is that? That's crazy. That's insane. And if they would react that strongly to your crazy proposed religion, then I would say, well, then 
There are at least some religions that are superior to others, and certainly nothing arrogant in you for making such an assertion. See, all of us judge religions. We may think there are certain religions that we don't think are totally nuts, and then there are ones that we think cuckoo. So all of us in ourselves, if we're going to be honest, would make that assessment. Jesus is said in the scriptures to not simply have been a man, but the creator of the universe. Look what the, the apostle John, you know, his self-proclaimed Jesus' best friend, the one whom Jesus loved, John would describe himself as, says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So this is the one who saw Jesus alive, who walked with Jesus on this earth, and concluded his own life by being boiled in oil and exiled to die on the island of Patmos. John, he says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, through him all things were made. This is his testimony. Later, John recalls a conversation that he and his friends had with Jesus. And Jesus answered in John 14, 6 and 7, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In Jesus, they are now seeing the character, the attributes of God the Father. Jesus... According to John, and if you're going to believe that he wrote down the words of Jesus correctly, according to Jesus, he's not a way to God. He's the only way to God. You say, well, that's offensive to me. Well, John would say it's logical. He was God from the creation of the world. He preexisted before creation. He actually created everyone, and anyone who would have ever started a religion was born because of what Jesus did. So obviously, he's the only way to God because he is God. Jesus doesn't point the way, he is the way. There's a logical objection that will come to this thought too, just so you know. And this was what the Hebrews were undergoing in terms of their pressure. They were being said, what you are saying about Jesus being superior to the angels, to Moses, to the prophets offends us and we are going to persecute you unless you change what you believe. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, I want to help you understand how you can gently communicate to people why we believe what we believe. There is an often in discussion things that are called logical fallacies. And this particular objection to the exclusive claims of Christianity tends to inevitably devolve into what uh, is really what's called an ad hominem argument. And that means that they're going to disregard any of the logic of what you're saying, and they're just going to attack you. Of course you'd say that. You're a communist, you know? And and regardless of whether or not you had anything valid to say about economic systems, they're just going to attack you because you are a slime ball. And that's the object is to disregard what you're saying by attacking your character. What happens is is people will ask the question, if you start talking about Jesus being God and the only way to God, people will phrase this question. What about all those other religions and the kids who are raised by these non-religious people? Now, this question is not designed to raise an intellectual objection, but to really force you to say something along the lines of, I don't care. 
and make you look uncaring and unsympathetic and uncompassionate. And once again, I would say the response to this particular question would be a question that helps them recognize the underlying problem with their philosophy. So I would ask, so are you asking me whether the 9-11 hijackers are going to be judged by Jesus because their parents never taught them about Jesus? Because Jesus was their creator, so they don't need to look to him and ask him for mercy? So the, the worst person in the world, in your estimation, just because they never heard about Jesus, there's not going to be any consequence to their action? And if they say, well, yes, then I'll say, well, then it's okay for me to use violence and force to try to coerce others into faith, and I won't have to worry about being judged by God. You see, if, if there's this sense that people would say, but what about this emotional objection to what you're saying? I would say, well, there's always an emotional objection. There's an emotional objection to opposing a pipeline that will deliver oil to our country. There are emotional objections to whether or not I should be able to get plastic bags for free at Ralph's here in Pasadena when I check out from the grocery store. I'm still mad about that. There's always going to be an emotional objection. It's not worth doing if there isn't something that's stirred in you that says, this makes me sad. This makes me heartbroken. And religious change and religious shifting is really painful, too, because sometimes the implications are brutal. You know why some people don't leave Islam? It's because they're threatened by death. We, we hear stories all the time from the Middle East of people who say, I want to become a Christian. They don't live in a country like ours that's pluralistic and religiously tolerant. And the reason they don't want to be Christians is not because they don't believe in Jesus, but because they're scared to death. So you and I, understandably, people, when they hear things like Jesus is God, not just another guy along with a bunch of other guys trying to tell you how to get to God. The Reason for God is a great book. Uh, Belief in God in the Age of Skepticism. It's by Tim Keller. If you've not read The Reason for God, it needs to be something you make a, a priority and that right soon. In this book, he uh, addresses something that was really profound in helping me understand because for many, many, many years I have heard uh, this objection to Christianity's exclusive claims. And, and, it, and it goes something like this, that we're all blindfolded and religion and God is like this gargantuan elephant. You heard this before? And we all kind of, because we're blindfolded, we grab the big fluffy ear and we go, this is what God is. And somebody else who's blindfolded over here grabs the elephant by the tail and says, the tail, this is what God is. But because we're all blind on, have blinders on, we all think our part of the elephant is God. And that sounds really like spiritual and like really like philosophically tolerant and just sort of more, you know, more impressive than saying my little trunk is the religion of the world. Keller points out something that I think is implicit in that argument, which is it is equally as arrogant to say, I'm outside the elephant and I don't have blinders on, and I see the rest of you poor schmucks grabbing a hunk of the elephant and claiming that it's God. See, why isn't that person considered really arrogant? You know, that I'm above you and you poor little souls with your blinders on. You can't see what I can see, which is you got a trunk and you got a tail. I, on the other hand, see the whole elephant. 
Keller summarizes by saying this. It is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions, namely that all are equal, is right. We are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but in different ways. The writer of Hebrews would say that Jesus is superior to the prophets because of who he is. And then he would say Jesus is superior to the prophets because of what he shows. So one of the arguments about Jesus' superiority is linked to the presumption that if he's alive, and if what the New Testament says and what we celebrate at Christmas time, the incarnate Jesus, if those things are reality, then, then the first argument that the writer of Hebrews makes is he's superior because he created everybody, and he created anybody that would ever think to create a religion. That's what makes him superior. The second is that Jesus is superior because of what he shows. So let's read verses 3 and 4. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So there's that word, superior, offensive to this group of people they were dealing with. And it says that Jesus is superior because he is God. He is now sitting at the right hand, the sign of authority of the majesty in heaven, that he is the radiance of God's glory. And when Jesus came, as we read before in John 14, and he literally showed them his being. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And from now on, you have seen God. He literally shows them, manifests in physical form, what God is like. And this has a, two purposes, at least two, that are seen in verse 3 itself. And the first is that by coming to earth, Jesus, who is called in verse 3, the exact representation of God's being, now begins to show us what he is really like. There is a conversation that always seems to take place. Well, I think God's like this, or I think God's like this. The New Testament writers, the first century believers, who claim to see a resurrected Christ and talk with him subsequent to this resurrection, and heard all that he taught when he was walking the earth, this group of people say that Jesus is now the blueprint you can know how God feels about you, your life, the things you're facing based on how Jesus reacted to others. Jesus was really kind to sinners. And you know what that means? That means we need to be really kind to sinners too because I'm one. I like it when you're kind to me. Thank you. Jesus was really patient with people who struggle with addiction and struggle with sin. That, you, you just look in the New Testament. You want to know what God the Father is like? towards people who are morally broken, Jesus is really patient. You got problems? Jesus is your guy. He's going to be like, hey, I'm with you. Arm around your shoulder. Look into his face. See nothing but kindness. Who did Jesus really have a problem with? People who thought they had it all figured out, that they knew the religions of the world, that they had it all figured out, and they darn sure didn't need Jesus' help or Jesus' forgiveness. In Proverbs and in James, James 4, 6, Proverbs 3, 34, both Old and New Testament, it said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
You see this manifested. You see this in Jesus. He's superior to the prophets because of what he's shown. He's shown us physically that if you're humble, you're going to get nothing but grace. But if you're proud, you're going to get his opposition. And that includes people who would claim to be his children. We get into places of great pride in our lives. We need to really pull back the reins and say something's wrong here. Because opposition from Jesus comes. You can actually see him physically opposing, calling the Pharisees who hated him and didn't need him and thought they had it figured out. He referred to them as snakes. You're a brood of vipers. That's not really touchy-feely language. This is a guy who wasn't happy with these folks. You want to know what God's like? The Bible says he's superior to the prophets of the Old Testament, not to mention the false prophets in the world. He's superior to all because he's God, but also because of what he shows us, which is that he's like amazingly kind to broken people. Secondly, well, and related to the first one, if the scriptures are accurate about the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then the debate about what God is like is over. And verse 3 brings this full circle and references Jesus again as God when it says, He sustains all things by His powerful Word. Now, if Jesus is God, if He is God, if you're going to grant that supposition, then His words carry the power of the Creator. It says that through Him all things were made. And in verse 3, it says that He sustains all things by His powerful Word. Genesis 1 says that the world was brought into existence by God's Word. In John chapter 1, we already read where John says that through Him all things were made. Jesus is superior to the prophets because He shows what the Father is like, but He also is showing us what the purpose of His life, what our purpose of our life is. He shows us what the heart of God is. The object of divine revelation has always been the fellowship between God and human beings. And verse 3 makes it clear that Jesus' role was to provide purification for sins. It says, After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The purpose of Jesus' life was to cleanse the broken people that he loved so much from sin. We'll get to more of this later in passages that speak about the need for a son and need for the Son to share fully in our humanity and to suffer and die so we might fulfill a high priestly role of making atonement for our sins. We'll get to more of that as we go through Hebrews. D.A. Carson says this about our introductory piece. God's final word to us is not simply the perfect revelation of His character in Jesus Christ, but also His saving work, making it possible for us to enjoy everything promised by God for our lives for his people in these last days. The essence of the gospel is that God wants us to know and enjoy him. And in Jesus, this process is complete. One need only to seek to know and be close to Jesus who wants to be near to his children. Jesus is superior to past revelation that God provided. And he's certainly superior to man-made attempts to portray God because Jesus himself is the embodiment of all of that revelation. He himself is God. He didn't point the way. He is the way. He provided the way. He came to us. He didn't wait for us to come to him. That's why he's superior. He didn't say, here are the rules. Get it all together, and then I'll come and help you out. He said, I'm coming to you to rescue you, 
I'm not pointing a, you to a path of ethics that you can start obeying and then maybe one day you'll be accepted by me. I'm coming to accept you now. I'm coming to draw you into my family. He is God if he's alive. If Jesus came back from the dead, he is superior because of who he is. And let me say this, and I want you to hear me clearly. If Jesus didn't come back from the dead, he is not God, and he's not superior to a soul. If Jesus did not come back from the dead, he is not God, and he is not superior to anyone. Verse 3 says that after he provided, he is the radiance of God's glory. And this word means to shine forth. And it's not just a reflection, it's a bursting forth of resplendent light. And Jesus is shining forth to the world his very character, the attributes and the essence of God. John wrote about it again in John 1.14. He said, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Radiance. This is a great word. It reminds me of the benediction we give every week at PRISM. It's just really the ironic blessing from the Old Testament. We say, the Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make his face shine down on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Something about the pleasure of the glory of God looking at you, the, the majesty in heaven looking at you in the face and saying, you are loved, you are accepted. And Jesus is the radiance of this. We look into the face of Jesus and it radiates God's love and grace. A few weeks back, some friends of mine and I got some free tickets to an Angels game. I don't know if you've been to the Angels game in Anaheim. Now, this first picture is our, our seats. They weren't good, but they were free. A long, long way. No, that's the other one. Uh, the, the other picture, if you have it, is, this is where we sat. So, I mean, you're talking free. All right, so just remember, we were grateful for the tickets. Out in center field, if we can show the other picture, that would be great. Out, way out in the center field to the left is this kind of this mound of rocks with a waterfall and there's this big gas fireball that flumes up from time to time, I guess, when something good happens. I, I can't, never really found the connection between when they'd set off this propane tank and, and whatever. But I can tell you that even where we were sitting in the cheapest of seats, we could feel almost immediately as that thing went off, we could feel the heat on our face. That's how powerful that radiated. I think about that when I think about the beauty of the gospel we're talking about a love that God has that will blow your hair back, assuming you have any. As God gives us insight by the power of His Spirit to see just who Jesus is. It's not about superiority for superiority's sake. It's superiority because God wants you to know the God of all creation likes you a whole lot more than you ever imagined. And all of those other religions, so-called, that say... God, we're not sure if he likes you or not. If you don't do this, 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 and this, that somehow or another, then God will like you. And the reason Jesus is superior because Jesus is telling us what our hearts long to hear. That is that he's going to wash our sins away. And he loves us completely and totally right now. We're accepted in Christ. And finally, verse 4 says that Jesus is not only superior to the legitimate prophets, not to mention the false ones, that he's superior to the angels. Ironically, I went to an angels game. Jesus is superior to the angels. 
Well, the reason is because he created the angels too. Jesus is eternally part of the triune God, co-equal with the Father and Holy Spirit, which is why he sits on the throne above all creation, because all of creation was made through him. And this is why the book of Hebrews was written, to proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ. And next week, we're going to look at the relationship between Jesus and the angels. Let us pray. Father, today we're thrilled to be able to say we humbly know a God who loves us more than we ever could have dreamed. So we pray that that would be that which gives life to our souls, gives joy to our hearts. It would be what would motivate our obedience to you and our praise to you, that we would be people, Jesus, who are just amazed when we experience the radiation of the love you have for us. And we would feel the heat of your love and it would make us full of joy. We pray in your name, Jesus.